Hey, hey, this is Brian Benstock, General Manager and Vice President of Paragon Honda and Paragon Acura. And this is the Brian Benstock Show, where we talk about how the future is going to be frictionless as we think the unthinkable in the future of retailing. Tune in to hear how today's top retailers are leveraging the disruption that is occurring everywhere and turning that very disruption into a competitive advantage. Hold on tight. It's going to be a fun ride. This is Brian Benstock, and this is the Brian Benstock Show. And today we have in the house Mr. Cedric King, Sergeant Cedric King, Ranger Cedric King. Uh, Cedric just laid down the law to the staff today. We had a meeting. The salesman was so impressed, so turned on. We're so excited to have him here with us today. Welcome, Cedric King. Brian, it's a pleasure. Cedric, uh, not everyone knows your story, so why don't you share your story with us? uh, Your story, what have you done? Where are you? Why are we here today? Uh, well, Brian, it's a great question. Um, I think about five years ago, five and a half years ago, I was in Afghanistan and I uh, had some unfortunate circumstances happen. I stepped on a landmine in combat and ever since then, everything changed. You stepped on a landmine in combat. Well, that's not something you hear every day. No. Nope. 21 months later, I crossed the finish line with you, 2014 Boston Marathon. In the 2014 Boston Marathon, you crossed the finish line with me. Well, before we get started, I have something I want to give to you. I brought you a gift. It's not really a gift that I bought. Uh, You're making me emotional. Wait a minute. It's a gift that I earned, and I I want to give this to you. Okay. This is my very first Boston Marathon medal, and I want you to have that. Uh, Wait, wait, wait. I want you to have that, champ because you inspire me. I know what it took me to get that. I know what it took for you to get and, and And I want you to have that. For what you did today with our team, what you've done to my life and the lives of others that are here. So you are a champion. And I really, really appreciate what you do for us. I really do. You sprung this one on me. Yes, I did. You said give you some hard balls, and that's a hard ball. That's a hard ball. <laughs> the reason why it's so hard for me to take this is because I know what it takes to get you. I'll go, get an, I'll, go, I'll go get another one. And we'll get we'll get another one together. Absolutely. Absolutely. So 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 you had uh, where, where did we meet? Uh, tell everybody we met, we were at an automotive leadership roundtable uh, in Miami and I met this young man and he was talking about running uh, the Boston Marathon that year and I was also running that particular year. The difference is you were running with prosthetic legs. I was. I was. Uh, I'm uh, uh, above the knee, below the knee. It's kind of rare that you find somebody that's above the knee and below the knee, but that happened to be my case. My right leg is above the knee, my left leg is below the knee. Uh, when I, I guess when I was standing on the on the landmine, more of my right foot was on the landmine and took it off more. Um, part of my right arm. But honestly, that's where the story really really gets good at. It's not, it's not the fact that <laughs> that the bomb isn't the highlighted story. That's what happened after the bomb. Tell us about that. Uh, I had a lot of setbacks. Um, I think the first setback was all the surgeries. Uh, it was a point where I was getting surgeries Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, every week, nonstop, every week. And it seemed like that that was going to be uh, what my life was going to be. It could be a series of surgeries. Uh, once the surgery stopped, I was able to, to don prosthetics. And that's where I began to get a little bit of momentum. 
we talked a little bit today about the small wins. And honestly, taking a couple steps may not seem like a big win to an adult, but to me, it was a huge win. Taking one or two steps, a huge win. And that huge win, even though it seemed small at the time, became bigger and bigger and bigger. I began to get more and more strength from those small wins. The small wins turned into big wins, and those big wins turned into you and I getting our very own Boston Marathon medals in 2014. One of my uh, finest, um, proudest moments was meeting you on the uh, course in Boston, and the odds of meeting somebody on the never course, happens. it never happens. And your, your wave had gone out before my wave, and at about mile 13 or 14 by yep. Wellesley College, yep. if I remember yep. correctly, yep. I came yep. up and I saw you running, and you had your blades on. Yep. And I said, oh my God, that's Cedric. And I remember going up to you and saying, Cedric! And you were you were really intense, and you looked up and went, hey man. And then all of a sudden, hey, it's you! And we started sprinting at mile 14 like we were just at the starting line. Like we were just at the starting line or the finish line was around the corner. Yeah, it wasn't. And honestly, it wasn't. That's where the part of the race gets tough at. It, see, the marathon course is designed to be long. It's actually a metaphor for life. It's actually a metaphor for life. It's, it's in the beginning, everybody's high-fiving, the anthem's going on, there's a band out there, it's music playing, it's very festive. But between the start line and the finish line is pure, is what you call torture. And, and sometimes in life, it's pure torture. It's just what it is. You're managing resources over a protracted period of time. And if you're gonna go out there really fast, you're gonna burn through those resources and you're not gonna make it. So it's, it's really, the training is designed to get you through that, See, those, the, the, that 26.2 miles. That's my first marathon. My first marathon ever was Boston. Uh, I hadn't a, run I, a marathon. That's unbelievable. The first marathon I ever ran was Boston. And and not understanding the magnitude and the difficulty of managing those resources over that long of a time period, I did not know how to get from uh, uh, mile one to, to mile eight. I used finish line pace energy and the star. There are people, Brian, you know, there are people that are high-fiving you on the, along the first mile. And right. I wanted to high-five everybody. There's a, there was a I sign, wanted to high-five everybody. There was a sign at Boston at mile one. Yep. It's like, congratulations, 25.2 miles to go. You're almost there. <laughs> but the thing about it, that's what we do in life. In life, what happens is, in the beginning of the journey, in the beginning of the marriage, when the child is first born, when we start the business, we sometimes give finish line pace in the beginning. It must be, like you just said, it must be managed carefully. This is precious energy. It must be managed carefully. Not that you're not that you're uh, sandbagging in the beginning, but you're managing you got, the you've resources. You've got to manage the resources. And, you know, resources. and it's easy to be excited when the band is playing, the music's yeah. on, but when you're, Don't be you're, when you're all alone out there, mile 17, mile 18, mile yeah. 19, then, you know, my, my running coach, Angela, said you break a marathon down into 10, 10, and 10. The first 10 miles, the second 10 miles, and then the last 10 kilometers. And, and she said, you run the first 10 miles with your head. Use your head. The second 10 miles, you run with your personality. The last 10K, you run with your heart. And 10, 10, and 10. And I remember that going through those first 10 miles, use your head, 
Use your head. You're all excited. Yep. You're fueled up. Yep. Seven forty-seven. I don't count. No. And, 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 and now, yep. now the second ten miles. What's your personality? Are you a little bit more aggressive or are you risk adverse? Use the personality. And then those last 10 kilometers, 6.2 miles, run with your heart. And because there's nothing else left with the heart. That day, I forgot to tell you this, that day, there's an aid station uh, right over there by the fire station. You turn the curve, yeah, sure, sure. fire station, and it's an aid station right across the street. And, and when I went to the aid station, I had every intent on just taking a break and then coming back to the course. Well, two young ladies that were running the course, at the back of the race, that's where you get all the stories. In the front of the race, there's only one story, it's the winner. In the back of the race, you get all kinds of stories. I go into the aid station, and two young ladies see me going there. And they thought I was going in there to go ahead and, you know, cancel but, the run. Yeah. I, I, I'm going in there, they think, well, right, if he quits, we're gonna be out here too. He's gonna give us the excuse that we need to go ahead and quit, because surely, if he quits, he's got every reason to quit, we can quit. We go in there, and what they don't know is, I'm just going in there to get a towel to, to wipe off, my face is coated with white salt. I go in there, wipe off my face, and I come back out again. What these two ladies said, if he gets up, we're getting up. They were not I happy. had no plans of sitting down. <laughs> they got up, and they got through uh, the, the hills in Newton, we get to Boston College, we climb uh, a, a cardiac, we come down and we start getting the pace. At mile 20, we're at Beacon Hill. We're coming around the corner. The ladies walked up, she ran up to me, they caught up to me and said, hey listen, you're the reason why we're gonna finish this year. Because around the corner there's a finish line. We were not supposed to make it. We had no intentions of making it. Right. But you are the reason why we're finishing it. And, and I think the metaphor is this. There are people that are watching you. Always. There are always people that are watching you. You don't know. You don't know they're watching But they're waiting for you to quit to give themselves That's an right. excuse to quit. Brian, do you understand? There are people that are waiting. That dealership, that guy right there is waiting for you to fold so he can fold. Hey, I am folding. And no that time guy, soon. the Volkswagen guy, is waiting for you to fold so that yeah. he can say, hey, look, yeah. honey, we gave it a good shot. Uh, I'm going to disappoint them every time. And that's what we got to understand. Yeah, it's true. not your responsibility to keep them going. It's your responsibility to keep you going, and they benefit because of it. You know, somebody asked at the meeting this morning what keeps you going and what, and what motivates you. That medal uh, that, that, that you have, the, the 2009, my whole team and I ran New York City to qualify for Boston. I did not qualify for Boston, and I was heartbroken. All my teammates qualified, but I didn't. And my coach said, there's one race you can run before then to qualify, mm. and it's Miami. And so I, I entered in Miami, and between November and January, trained like mad to qualify for Boston. See, most and, people don't even understand what you just said. You said you trained between what months? From November to January. See, in New York, in the cold. Thank you, thank you. You have to put that in perspective, because running in between November and January is a total different kind of training. I, I needed I needed a three hour and 30 minute or shorter, mar uh, faster marathon when, when, when I, to qualify. And I ran, and when I ran, I ended up running in three hours and 21 minutes. And when I crossed the finish line, I went to, the woman went to put the metal around my head, and I screamed, I'm going to Boston. Yeah. She said, you're supposed to say you're going to Disney. I said, I'm going to Boston. And when I got, 
to, to the station where I could get my, my bag, and I, the first message on, on the phone was from my coach, Angela. And Angela was screaming on the phone, oh my God, oh my God, you did it, oh my God. And, and so you're running for those people. And I, I ran that whole race at the 320 pace group to say if I could hang on just to, to the end, yeah. the last five or six miles, I could slow down and be okay. I ran 25 miles at the 320 pace and made a conscious decision on the last mile to just enjoy the miles. I had it in the bag. At last mile. And I had it in the bag and I looked and I'm smiling and running and, and, I, and instead of running an eight minute pace or a nine minute pace or whatever it was, but it, 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 I got to run with all of my friends at that marathon. And in fact, I was so excited we made a documentary on that marathon that I have. So I, I've got the memories and the documentary. And, and that's a special medal to me and you're a special man. I gotta ask you this. Tell me about the time in this race where you hit the wall. Uh, and the, the proverbial wall, maybe for some people it's 18. The proverbial oh, I, I wall, maybe just the moment where you in life hit the wall and you don't have any more answers. Nobody, nobody's asked me that question. I'll give you the answer. My friend Rachel Tolchin uh, was going to Harvard at the time mm. and she was waiting at the bottom of the Newton Hill first hill a first, and, and a first. she was running all of our teammates that were, as they came along up the top of the hill and yeah. she'd run back down wait for the next one yeah. and run them back down and she was there and I was so excited to see her yeah. and, and we ran up the hill and she says you look great you're doing great and we got to the top of the hill I go that's it she goes no there are yeah. three more yeah. and, and the, that's where Great. I hit the wall. And she said, I'll see you later, BB. And she went back down the hill. And I went into a porta potty. And I sat in that porta potty and had a conversation with myself. Are we gonna finish this or are we not gonna finish this? And, and at mile 17, yep. I made the decision to be all in and got back out there and had a, a really great race. And I have to tell you, that race I can also remember, all the guys at Paragon, I was so, I talked so much about that, I qualified, yep. they were all watching my times, they were all watching. So that race I finished with the team at Paragon. And they made me this giant poster that I have in my garage to this day. Boss, you did it. And it's a picture of me running with the time on that and, and so through the finish line. I look at that, I look at that every day when I get home. Yeah, how it was that, I thought it was kind of hot that day. Uh, I thought it was rather hot. In the beginning, in the morning, it wasn't it wasn't so bad, but throughout the day, I think it got up to the 70s. Yeah, the 70s a wall. And, and when you're doing that, I think it, I looked at the time the other day, and I took a screenshot of it on my iPhone. Uh, it took me eight hours, 54 minutes to do that with with a 20 with a 20 minute offset. So 23 minute offset. Wow, that's a but, lot. Of, that's but, a, people don't understand that the time out there. Uh, the longer you're out there, the more difficult it is. It's not the slower you're going, it's the more difficult. The fast guys, do you, do you remember what happens? Do you remember the fast guys? Do, do you ever, so they, they start a wave ahead of you. They yeah, start to begin. Yeah, they, they, when, they start out. Uh, so they never pass you? No. You never see those guys? And you never pass them. <laughs> I, it's the only time, running is, marathons is the only sport where you're going to be on the same course as a professional. It doesn't happen that way in hockey. You'll never be on the same ice with Gretzky or, 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 or anybody. That's you're true. not going to be on the same football field as Odell Beckham or Eli Manning. In marathon racing, you're going to be on the same course as the pros. And I have the unique experience to see the females come by first and then the elite males come by. And I made a conscious decision. They passed me in mile eight. Think about eight. And when they come by, I always hang with them for about 10 seconds, maybe. 
they're running at like a at, at a five minute pace. Four four thirty five. Four thirty five. These guys are are like every mile. They're, they're running at thirteen miles an hour. The the, the lead for two straight miles, hours. For two, for two straight hours. And and, and again, that you did. Yeah. And for people that don't quite understand that, next time you go to your gym, go to the treadmill. Put it up to 13 miles an hour and see how many seconds, if you can stay on there for. I think they're the greatest athletes in the world. And it's fun. It's it's. I think for the elites, it's me running against you. But for the average sports person, it's me running against me. See, you may never beat Meb, but you can beat that voice on the inside that says, "Hey, let's take a break." And that is here's a hill. Let's let's take a break. Yeah. That's who you're competing against. It's not you competing against the person beside you. But, it's but, you competing but, against but that person. We, whatever we're doing, aren't we always managing those voices in our head? Every the day. Voices that are saying, quit, stop, don't do it, why are you yeah. doing this, you don't need this, whatever the excuses yeah. are. And those other voices. We don't need this. The other voices on the other side saying, try one more time. Yeah. Give it one more shot. Go ahead. You got this. Keep swinging. Yeah. And, and you know, eventually, we, we had this discussion yesterday with a friend. Who has the most, you know, Babe Ruth is known for what? He hit the most home runs. The other thing nobody knows about, he also struck out the most. He's got to be swinging the bat every day. I heard Kobe say this, and, and I know. Oh, he's, a, he's a beast, man. I love Kobe. Kobe, Kobe talked about this. There's a, there's, a, there's a play, and you guys can all YouTube it. There's a play where he tears the Achilles. And I know you've seen it a thousand times. And I, I, you may have put it in one slide. But Kobe tears the Achilles in the game against Golden State Warriors. And he gets to his feet and hobbles to the free throw. Now, no one would ever say, oh, Kobe, you're a dirtbag for... No, you're so, when you tear your Achilles, you're supposed you're to get done. carried off in a gurney right, right. or, or, or hobbled off to the side. Kobe hobbles to the free throw line. He made two made, free throws. Made two. Made two. And then... But see, went to the hospital. For the average person, what that is, is this. The circumstances are not going to dictate what I do. I'm going to dictate what I do. I'm going to make the last two shots, and then I'll decide to go to the bench. Grover tells that story. He said, uh, Kobe got up, went to the free throw line. My only question was, would he make one or would he make two? And he made two. That was the only question he said, would he make one or would he make two shots? You have every right to miss both free throws. We're gonna clap for you just because you got to the free throw. But the, the, the wherewithal to hobble to the free throw, pick the ball up, take your dribbles, and basically shoot on one foot and make both of them. Then say, oh, and forget the pain factor that's going on. I mean, you just tore, you your, tore your Achilles. I mean, it's gotta, I mean, but I can't talk to you about pain. You got some experience. But with the that. fact that he had the wherewithal in a professional basketball contest against other professionals. But that's the training. That's the training, and that's it. When you put in all that work, it's not for that uh, for that particular game. It's for that time when you're really going to be tested. Absolutely. I think Grover tells a story about when Kobe's at, at, the, at the pregame shooting, and he's not making these shots. What's going on with this shot? It's not falling. But see, Kobe had put so much hard work in when he wasn't making the shots. He didn't. He, he knew. Hey, that shot's supposed to go in. What's wrong? He didn't say what's wrong with me. Right. He's, he's recalibrating. He says, he says, he says, it's something wrong with that rim right there. It goes up to the officials. It says, measure that rim real quick. The official said, well, no, 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 it's a professional rim. We, we just played on the same rim. I said, he said, measure the rim again. Take out the measure. Take the stick up. He said, he said, what, what would you find? He said, 
You're right. It was off. He said, how much? Quarter of an inch. That's, that's unbelievable. Is, huh? is it not the fact, see, the only way that you can be certain that the process works is that if you put in the hard work, then you know for a fact it's not you anymore. But see, what do we do? We don't put in the hard work, and, we and then we blame someone else. It's all, well, it can't be me, but you ain't putting the hard work in. If you haven't put in the hard work, then, then, then guess what? It could be a number of different things, but when I put in the hard work, I know it's not me. I expect for the shot to go in. Let's shift gears just a little bit. Yep. You know, I'm finding today that when I talk about work ethics, hard work, putting in the extra time, I'm getting a lot of pushback from young managers, young salespeople that just don't understand because they're so used to for the past eight, nine, ten years. We've had the wind at our back. Yeah. You know, I mean, since 2008, since that recession, they, they, they dumped a couple of trillion dollars in stimulus dollars there. And I think a lot of people are not aware of what hard work is. And they think it's always going to be like this. And what, what do I say to them? And Brian, the only reason why I'm here right now is because I failed Ranger School three straight times in a row. I, I failed at the, at the at the pinnacle of the Army education system. The top leadership school that you can go to in the military is the United States Army Ranger School. I failed at it three times. Not because not because someone else did me wrong, but because I made a mistake every single time. It's course correction. The course correction helped me figure out where I need to succeed next time. How, how, how long in between uh, tests? You're gonna get tested just about every day. No, to, no, to, to get into Ranger School. Oh, good gracious. Uh, to get into Ranger School, you have to take a physical test. You have to take a knot test. Uh, it, it, there is a, there's a sifting in there. The first week is designed to sift out me, people that are not supposed to be Let me ask you this When you failed that first time, Absolutely. when were you able to take the test again? A month later. A month later. Okay, you so you have to go back there. to the drawing board. You gotta sit there and you gotta ask yourself those questions. Now, in that month, you can quit any time in that month. Yeah. Fortunately for me, I did not have another recourse. Once again, I burned the ships. I couldn't go back and tell Brian in the military, hey, I didn't measure up. What happened? What happened? Uh, it wasn't my day. No, no. It just doesn't work that way. It, there's a no excuse kind of policy. I can't go to my sergeant and say, hey, I failed or not test. It just doesn't work. Can, can we say that that persistence is what's helped you after you had your injury? It was the failures that right. helped me be here. Right. It's not the it's not the time where I graduated. I have the graduation diploma in my office at home, but that's not the thing that really got it. I wish I could go back and find and find the, the what they call it ORs. I wish I could find the observation report where I failed. That's the thing that's that you helps that's, me. So you learn from the failure. Metal. That's what you learn from the failure. It's the time where it's one o'clock in the morning and I got the entire patrol lost. It's one o'clock in the morning, I got 40 men following me, and I'm telling them, hey, in 100 yards, we should be at the objective. We should be at the reconnaissance place. 100 yards later, no objective. 200 yards, no objective. I got people asking me, hey, I thought we were supposed to be here right now. Are we close? And now you're having to lead me in that now have doubts. Isn't that very much like running a business? I'm leading men and women to an objective. Yep. And, and if I'm off course, 
I've got, you know, three, four hundred men and women. People ask questions now. They're asking questions. Hey, we should be here by now. He's the captain. What happened to our captain? I find it amazing. I know we, we just pass over Columbus Day in October. But that guy right there, you know what kind of leader this guy had to be? To sail two months without one stitch of land. Uh, and I'm having to sell a, a 200 man crew on the fact that there will no, be we're land good. tomorrow. We're good, we're good. Okay, Not, I don't mean tomorrow, I mean tomorrow. You know what kind of salesman you gotta be? Yeah. I got people dying of, of scurvy yeah. and he said, no, we're gonna turn around and go back. No, you're not. We'll be there tomorrow. Tomorrow, we'll, we'll be there the next day. You gotta be sold on land. See, for Columbus, you have to see land in here way before you see land here. And I will tell you right now, if you're in the business of sales, you gotta see it here first. Dream it, believe it, achieve it. If you don't dream, it starts dream. We were talking last night in the city. Everything that was around us in the magnificent city of Manhattan started out in some man or some woman's mind as a dream. Everything there. And then, make me and then believe it and then start to achieve it. The, the seeing of it is the final part. How long do you run a marathon before you see the finish line? How, hours. Uh, hours, yeah. You put over it in and torture. Over. Listen to me, I'm, I'm in the gym now on the treadmill and I'm watching, I'm running the Chicago Marathon in 2018. And I'm running on the screen in front of me, the 2017 Marathon. That's right. And I'm just watching it, I'm going over it and over it and watching it and running it mile by mile. By the time it comes in October, it's second. We're related, bro. We're well, related. I thought I was the only person that goes on YouTube and does that no, when I'm running. No, no, no. It's on the TV screen, 60 inch screen, and I'm watching and I'm telling you that that, that race, uh, Galen Rupp comes out of nowhere, uh, a first American to win that in a long time. He he dominates the Ethiopians with about two miles to go, pulls out of the pack. There's a peloton-shaped pack. Yeah. Pulls out of the pack, pulls ahead of them, and you see the Ethiopians really pumping and humping and pumping, yeah. and there's Galen just laying down the hammer. And it's such, to me, I've watched it now uh, probably 50 times, yeah. and I'll watch it another couple hundred times yeah. before, so that when that marathon comes and that course comes, I know I'm gonna make a right into Grand Park, I'm gonna make a left up the hill, yeah. and I'm gonna barrel down three quarters of a mile to the finish line. It, it, it's here. It, it, think about and these Lord, races. please keep the body together. No more injuries, Lord, please. The thing about these races is, this is the, the, the smallest part of the marathon. Getting to the finish line, that's the smallest part. The major part is the parts where you do not see the finish line. 99.9% of the time, there is no finish line. It's the last 10 steps. In Boston, it was the last point too. You turn on, you turn on voice, and, and then you can see the finish. Yeah, uh, uh, right and on the left. You know, the craziest thing is uh, you're saying that is, and it's so analogous to business. The 26.2 miles of the marathon is the last 26 miles. The average training is about 700 miles. So by the time oh you God. get to that 26.2, it's done. The hay is in the barn. You know what the outcome's going to be. Yep. And, and, and I'm real excited to, to get back uh, to get back there. One of the reasons also that we're here today is Paragon is committed to doubling business. Doubling our business. And you see, we've got a, you know, a showroom full of really great customers and great people. But I, I want to play at a different level. Yeah. And, and I think I think we can do it. I think the business is there for us to do it. You wouldn't have said that if, see that. Let me let me explain something to you. 
these philosophies that we have, the dream that says we're gonna double business, it doesn't come to everybody. So that alone lets you know that this is meant to be. Number two, you have to understand that if you're gonna double uh, input, you're gonna you're gonna get double the, the, the income, then that means you have to double, maybe sometimes triple your output. It's in, it's an inverse relationship. It's it's don't worry about the outcome. Just concern yourself with the effort. The outcome is a different department. It takes care of itself. For me to double my speed, that means I have to quadruple my train. That means I need to start running heels. Yeah, yeah. You want to run faster? Okay, well then, run heels. Put on a weight vest. Make your training harder. Well, and look at all the, you see, that that's the great thing. The goal, uh, if, and again, go back to running, and it's very analogous to business. In order to have a, a substantial increase in speed, you've got to not only improve your training, but your nutrition, your rest, your understanding of the game. Yeah. And, and, and I want the goal to double business to be for what it's going to cause our team to have to become. For the men and women that are going to have to become businessmen and women, use their time more effectively, yeah. uh, uh, provide more value, greater value to the customers, so that we can ask for that doubling of the business. When you when you provide double the value, then you, you barely have to ask. I imagine uh, if you're giving me triple and double the value, you you need to ask. It's it's a part of. It's just part of the story. We we're, were talking about Ali this morning, Muhammad Ali. We're both God, huge fans. Go and, and, and that guy was brilliant at every part of the game. You know, I mean, people don't give him the credit for how easily, uh, how, how difficult it was for his opponents to hit him. Yeah. And in the first bunch of years of his career, he barely got hit. And that's not, it, it, it's a skill set. And his speed, and when his speed started to, to wane a little bit, his other skill sets took over. You've got to be masterful at every level of the game in, in the business. You know, if we're in selling, uh, you think you're going to make it today without being a master salesperson? You're not. You're not. The market won't pay for that. that. You're fooling yourself. You'll be replaced by a kiosk. But the kiosk is in no danger of replacing a master salesperson. Because a master salesperson is providing value, and a kiosk is not going to provide value. So that's the message to the guys is to really learn that craft. I, I would tell you this, Thomas Howard writes above about Muhammad Ali and and, and in, the, in the initial chapters it's talking about how Joe Martin, the, the policeman, talked about Ali being a very average fighter in the fight club. In the beginning, in the beginning. He came in and, and, and he says, well, what are you here to do? He said, somebody stole my bike and I want to beat him up. It was a tragedy that turned him into the greatest. See, we think that the tragedies that happen in life are coming to take something. Oh, whoa, no, 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 no. This man just had his only, but he grew up poor. His bike was stolen. He, he allowed that one tragedy not to break him, but to turn him into the greatest fighter we've ever seen. I think what Rudyard Kipling said, see the uh, success and tragedy for the imposters that they are. And, and they are impossible. You know, my, some of the biggest difficulties in my life have really been the most beneficial to me. And some of the things I thought were successes, you know, sometimes when you, you take yourself too seriously with that success, that's when the, the decay starts. You start eating improperly, training improperly, because you, you feel, I'm, I'm good. The next thing you know, you, you, you're, you've eroded your success. I got I to gotta ask you this. It's just going back to where you're talking about doubling and tripling. 
uh, tell me about what you're willing to give up. What are you giving up? I, I had to, see, this life that I live now, I don't think I'd be able to live it if I hadn't given up something, or not given up something, something was taken away so that I could, if I didn't lose the two legs, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't know you. Yeah. There's a sacrifice that was made, so I'm sitting here talking to you right now. What sacrifice are you willing to give up? What sacrifice are they going to have to give up well, to double? See, I, I, I work a lot of hours always, so it's not so much time. I, I had to give up some beliefs. I had to give up the belief that what we were doing was the best we could do. I had, I had to understand that I may not have the education necessary to get to that next level, so I had to reprogram and re-educate myself and get myself around people that are large, big thinkers. I had to look at what, what, what's Google doing, what's Amazon doing, what's Facebook doing, and if they had a dealership, what would they do? I, I had to start looking at if, if my favorite CEO, Jack Welsh, oh, would run Honda. What, what would Jack Welsh do? I'm, I, so I had to start asking better questions, and I had to start realizing that um, I may not have this figured out. And, and so I think it was giving up those beliefs uh, and I'm going to put in the work but now I'm putting in the work differently and so it's getting everybody else to see uh, I respect what we did I respect what we do and, but I, I also want you to come on this journey with me to where we're going and, and I think that's my role as a leader is to give them the mission show them their role in the mission show them how they fit in and then show them about what's in it for them when they get yep. there and, but, but it starts with the Here's the mission, right? I mean, you were on combat missions. I, hopefully those objectives were clear before you left. Well, let me tell you this, man. There have been times where the captain has asked me to do things that I know are inherently dangerous. That particular morning, see, I did not explain to you the place that he has to go do the recon. Nobody has come out of this place without being shot, maimed, or, or an amputation of some sort, or dead. Everybody, every, every platoon that's gone into that into that village just had one of those four things happen. Sure. Going in, I actually expected to come out with all of us there. It's so fortunate that I was the only one that had an amputation. Like, I, I was the one that got hurt. That's not cool. And And the thing about it is, you gotta understand, sometimes as leaders, we have to ask our people to do things where I know it's gonna be tough. But I'm not asking you to do it because I want you to get injured. But I know it's going to be tough. But because it's going to be tough, it's going to make you a better person. The captain never thought that I was going to become an amputee. But by him asking me to do this tough thing, it made me a better person. And, and, and I know he would probably never wish harm on me. But the fact of the matter is, what happened to me happened to me and it made me better. It didn't happen inside me, it happened to me. And I use what happened to me to make myself and my family's life better. C C Cedric, if, if people are watching and, and your message is resonating with them, and I'm sure it is, how would they reach out to you to contact you? Uh, there's a number of different ways. Uh, first of all, there is a website, www.cedricking.us. And uh, that's actually where we've been doing all our business out of. Okay. People reach out all over the world. But then there's another place uh, we have on that website. It's a contact phone. And you can get in contact with uh, someone from our team. And, uh, we're actually having a book that's coming out. And that's going to uh, uh, have a book tour. We talked to uh, some people. We're going to have a book tour. It's Great. Also. It's going to sure. be incredible. Well, when the, when the book comes out, certainly I'd like to get a copy of it. I want to talk to you about it once it comes out. And, and, um, and, and if somebody wanted to help 
uh, soldiers like yourself that have uh, had some difficulties and they wanted to make a contribution, wh wh where should they direct those funds to? I'm an ambassador of, of three uh, incredible foundations and you can look at their, at their operation to give back ratio and you can take a look at them. Uh, they all have impeccable records. But number one, I'd say Achilles. They're based out of here yeah. in New York City. Yes, they and are. it's not it's not an organization that gives uh, uh, cots and blankets away. They give away opportunity. And, and they give away registrations for you to compete again. See, they're not giving me uh, clothes or, and, and that, nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with that. But they gave me an opportunity to, to, to meet the guy that was a competitor before. When I got injured, I didn't see the competitor. They introduced me to the Sergeant King competitor by allowing me to compete in marathons, to compete in 5Ks and 10Ks. They showed you what was possible. They showed me what was possible. And see, sometimes that's really all you need is to know that it's possible. Registered me in my first half marathon. They get uh, hand cycles for guys that aren't runners anymore, but they want to compete again. So they do hand cycles or they do wheelchair racing. I've done all three. And honestly, that's the best thing that you can do for somebody is reintroducing them to the competitor. Can I tell you, sure. I, I was running and, and, and I entered into a 5K race. And it, was, it was an Achilles Foundation race. Yeah. And I didn't know what the foundation was. And I, I thought it was for disabled people. And I had a different understanding of disabled people. Yeah. And, and then when we were running, there were all these young, super healthy, strong yeah. men and yeah. women that were missing limbs. And, and then as we ran past Engineers Gate, there were tanks and military vehicles. And I That's realized right. these were wounded warriors. That's right. And, and at the time, I had some knee discomfort. And that went away real quick when I saw what those guys were going through and those women were going through. Perspective. And these were young people in the prime of their lives yeah. that have been robbed. Setback. Uh, and, and, and just an incredible foundation. What, uh, what else? The other, the other two charities are uh, the Gary Sinise Foundation, uh, which has come along to help my family and myself out. Gary Sinise? Incredible. He's, Gary Sinise Foundation. He's, in, uh, uh, he's Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump. Forrest and he's Gump, also yeah. played a number of other different roles, CSI, yeah. uh, uh, Criminal Minds. But the thing about it was he does, he, uh, he donates his time and his money and his own personal funds to make sure that guys like myself have specially adapted homes. This is the guy that doesn't have legs that lives in a house that needs to get upstairs to go to his bedroom. Right. Well, how does he get upstairs? He, he has to have help with his family. The guy that's got, I, I say this all the time, the guy that wants to reach the soy sauce in the, in the cabinet that's too far away from him, and he's gonna fall out of the wheelchair and doesn't have anybody at home. What is he gonna do? Well, Gary Sinise comes along and gives especially adapted homes to guys like myself who got hurt by doing the right thing. Yeah. That got hurt, something bad happened by them doing the right thing. Uh, and I think the last, uh, the last foundation that, that I that I donate my time to is the Yellow Ribbon Fund. The Yellow Ribbon Fund is an amazing organization that came along and helped my family and I when we were in the hospital uh, provide opportunities for my daughters to, to be a kid again. I mean, we lived in the hospital for three years, and my daughters, they part of their childhood, unfortunately, was in a hospital. There was no go out to the playground. There was no uh, go Easter egg hunt or go trick or treat. It was, hey, we got like, we live in a hospital. Not for you to feel sorry for us, but the Yellow Ribbon Fund came along and said, hey, listen, don't worry about it. We're gonna throw a bingo night for all the, the, the kids of amputees right there in the cafeteria. 
we're going to have uh, a trick-or-treat or we're gonna throw a, a Halloween festival just for the kids Christmas time we're gonna make sure that they have a Christmas even though they live in a hospital and they're continuing to do it to this day might not be a war going on there's always a soldier that's given uh, a sacrifice well, I, I want to thank you for your service to our country and for your friendship. And, and please, folks, if you feel it in your heart to, to make a contribution to any of those foundations that uh, uh, Cedric has mentioned, please do. And Cedric, thank you very much for being a part of our team. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.